The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to go to a verse of scripture that's found in Matthew, the first chapter. Matthew begins by calling his gospel the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And he calls him the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then he gives us a genealogy. He tells us of those that are in the earthly lineage of Christ. And he comes down to a man named Joseph, whose wife's name is Mary. And he begins to tell us about the birth of Jesus Christ. And you all, I'm sure, know the story that she was found with child and it wasn't Joseph's child. And he was concerned. That we read about Joseph here. We, we learn some things about Joseph. We learn he was, he was a just or a righteous man, but he wasn't just a legalistic man. He was someone that had compassion. He had love for his wife. He had love for his fellow man, apparently, and enough compassion that he didn't want to just embarrass her he was he was going to just put her away privately and and be done with the matter and 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 as embarrassing and difficult as it could have been Joseph was going to try to make it as as good as he could but it tells us that while he was debating what he was going to do an angel appeared to him and told him some things uh, particularly the angel said don't be afraid to take Mary as your as your wife and says, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 21, he gives us a statement that perhaps more than any other verse of Scripture in the entire Bible defines what we believe here at this church and should define us as Christians as, our, as to our understanding of where our salvation lies. He says in verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. As I said, this verse, perhaps more than any other verse in the scripture, if someone asks you, what do you believe at Zion Church? You know, you can talk about many different things, but if you want to, you can just short-circuit it all and go straight to Matthew 1.21 and say, we believe that when Jesus came, he came to save his people from their sins, and he did just that. Amen. That's what we believe that this is teaching us here, and that's what we believe at this church. The word saved means to rescue or to deliver from danger or destruction. Whenever we read the word saved in the scripture, we need to ask ourselves a question, saved from what? Because quite frankly, there's many different types of salvation taught in the word of God. Sometimes people get mixed up on this and they get confused because they, they, they think every time they see the word saved or salvation, it's talking about eternal salvation. Peter was walking on the water one time. And he got to looking at the waves around him and the, the wind that was blowing and he got his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. And he cried out desperately to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, save me. <laughs> now, was he asking the Lord to save him for eternal heaven? No, he could have gone straight to heaven by just dropping down in the water and drowning. 
He was, he was, not, being, he was not asking to be saved for, from his sins. He was, he was asking to be delivered from the current circumstance that he was dealing with. There's a place in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 where Peter makes the statement. He says that uh, uh, baptism doth now save us. Well, we don't believe that that's talking about eternal salvation. He's not talking about in order to go to heaven, you have to be baptized first. There's another salvation <clears throat> under consideration there. There was a different salvation under consideration with Peter. So we have to ask ourselves every time we read the word saved, saved from what? What is it talking about? What? And context is everything. Now that doesn't have a thing in the world to do with what I want to preach about this morning, okay? <laughs> because, because what's under consideration here, according to the context, is indeed eternal salvation. <laughs> I shouldn't say it didn't have anything to do with it, but you need to understand that it's not always talking about that. But here this morning, when Jesus, it's said of Jesus, he shall save his people. Look at what he's saving them from, from their sins. We're talking about eternal salvation here. The context clearly delineates for us that this is a salvation that has to do with eternity and delivering us from the eternal penalty that we should have suffered for our sins. So let's, let's talk about this verse for a few minutes this morning. Notice it says, he shall save. It doesn't say here he's going to try to save. It doesn't say he'll do the best he can to save. It doesn't say he may save. It says he shall save his people from their sins notice it's the same word used previously in the same verse she shall bring forth a son didn't say maybe she will she shall you know what pretty much everybody who in the denominational world even that calls himself a christian believe yes she did <laughs> she shall bring forth a son yes check check that one off the list she did it and then it says thou shalt call his name jesus not Call him Jesus if you want to. Or maybe, maybe they'll think up a, a, a better name, but if they don't, you can use Jesus. No, it says, she shall, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Check. <laughs> Check that one off the list. Everybody pretty much agrees on that, but the problem comes in sometimes. When we get to that last one, and sometimes we don't realize, we don't accept the fact that that shall is just as strong as the other two shalls. And you know what? You can check that one off the list too. He shall save his people from their sins. Check. He did it. He did it. And you know, beloved, that's really important because I don't know about you, but I needed saving. I think we can all agree that we all needed saving. You know what God told Adam in the garden? Back over, you don't have to turn there, but read that account. After he creates Adam, after he creates Eve, he places a tree in that garden called the tree of life, and he places another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says in Genesis 2.17, he says to Adam, Adam, I got one row for you. One row. Isn't that something? One row. Don't, don't you wish we just had one rule today? That's, you know, the laws of the state of Alabama encompass 40-something volumes, hundreds of thousands of, 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 
of laws and rules that we have to follow, okay? So in that day, he had one rule. He had one law. And he said, uh, he said Adam, you just don't eat of that one tree. Now, the devil comes along, and, and this is, again, a little side trip here. Let's just go down this trail just briefly. Young folks, you know how the devil gets you? The devil will change what your parents say. The devil will put a negative spin on some rules that, the, that, that, that are out there for you. As you know, I've told you this before. When I was a teenager, you know, I was allowed to go. I was able to go anywhere in Tuscaloosa except there's a couple of nightclub establishments that I wasn't supposed to go to. But you know what I heard? I didn't say, oh, look at my freedom. I didn't say, boy, daddy is so great. They let me go anywhere I want to except these two places. No, I was so... I was so chafed because they told me I can't go here. <laughs> That's not what he said. He said you can go anywhere you want to except these two places. There was freedom and liberty in my dad's and my parents' uh, rules for me. Well, the same thing in the garden. God said, listen, Adam, of every tree you can eat, you can have the peach tree, the apple tree, the fig tree, every tree, from every tree out there you can eat except this one. But you know what the devil did? In the third chapter, he says, Yay, hath God said you cannot eat of every tree? <laughs> Puts a little negative spin on what God said. <laughs> you know, we don't like to be told what to do, do, do we? Well, <laughs> you're not going to tell me what to do. Well, you know, God was saying to Adam, You've got all kinds of freedom. You can do whatever you want to do, except that one thing. But Adam was told in the garden, In the day you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. You know, the penalty for sin, it's pretty clear. It's death. It's death. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And Romans tells us in the fifth chapter, in the twelfth in the verse, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You understand, I believe, here at this church, that we... We, we understand that Adam was our representative. He was our federal head representative. He was the perfect representative for us. You, you say, well, if, I, if I'd have been in the garden, I'd have done differently. Yeah, you probably would have. You'd have run straight to the tree and eaten. <laughs> Adam, at least, was a much better representative. God, don't you think God, you know, we, we mess up sometimes when we elect representatives. We elect the wrong person. I've done that several times in my life and regretted my choice. God, though, is perfect in his knowledge, perfect in his understanding, perfect in his power. God was able to create the best perfect representative for man that there could possibly be apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and it was Adam his genetics were perfect <laughs> the only way you'd have been different from Adam is that you would have done this sin quicker most likely Adam goes and he eats and we're told that whereas by one man Adam sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men. We all died in Adam. Now, 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 just because you say that old Adam, I wouldn't be a sinner if it wasn't for him. <laughs> well, there's a sense in which that's true because you inherited his sin-cursed nature. You inherited his nature of sin. But beloved, you are a sinner. <laughs> he says that death passed upon men and, and you're not escaping for that all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we're told. Ephesians 
Paul, in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us we were dead in trespasses and in sins. Isaiah, in that glorious gospel chapter, in chapter 53, Isaiah says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know why the Lord had to lay on him the iniquity of us all? Because we've all gone astray. We are all as an unclean thing. John chapter 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus there, he's telling him about the need for the new birth. And he says to him in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, there's no spiritual evolution. We don't believe in physical evolution in the natural world, do we? We believe that God created this world. We believe that the world is here by the creative act of God. But many out there believe that, that, that tadpoles can evolve into humans. <laughs> that that some, some place back in the time past, the primordial soup of this world, uh, that, 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 that cells evolved to the point to where that they, uh, uh, they ultimately resulted in you and me. <laughs> But, but we don't believe that. We don't believe that kind of evolution. But do you know there are people that believe in spiritual evolution? That that which is flesh can become spirit if educated enough, if built up enough, if taught enough, if they do enough, if they work enough. They believe, we don't believe that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Born implies a creative act. What happens when someone is conceived and born? A new life is created you see it's not an evolution it's a new life and that's what he's talking about there we needed to be saved because we fell in adam all have sinned and come short of the glory of god and beloved we couldn't save ourselves we could not save ourselves in romans 3 and verse 10 listen to this as it is written there is none righteous no not one there is none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Notice how the Holy Spirit prompted, prompted Paul to write that. It's almost, it's almost as if he knew there would be objections. or Somebody would ask the question when he says, there's none that doeth good. And they say, isn't there anyone? No, not one. No, not one. And he goes on to describe where we are. We are dead in trespasses and sin. Let me ask you this question. How dead is dead? How dead is dead? I've tried, I've tried to explain it this way before, and I'll share it again with you. I got a basement in my house. We bought a big screen TV, Brother Glenn, and put it in the, down there. That's sort, of our, that's sort of our movie room, you know. And I could even envision a scenario if I retire one day where I get so lazy and sorry that I go down there and don't come out. I just, if somebody would supply me with food and drink, I'd be all right to just stay down there and eat and sleep and watch TV. And, you know, I could see that's, that's in me. I could see me doing that. What if I'm down there and I die? If I die sitting on my couch watching my TV in my basement? You could come to the top of the stairs. And you could call out to me and say, Chris, hey, come on up here and I'll, I'll feed you something. I'll clothe you. I'll, I'll take care of you. 
Am I going to do that? I'm, I'm dead, right? I'm dead. Well, you could even say, Chris, I've got a million dollars at the top of these stairs. If you'll just, and all, you don't even have to get up. Just call out to me and tell me you want it. Tell me you'll accept it, and I'll, I'll bring it to you and get you up here. Am I going to be able to be bribed like that? I'm dead. You could threaten me. <laughs> you could stand up there and say, hey, the house is on fire. It's burning down. And if you don't at least call out to me, if you don't accept my offer of help, then you're going to burn up in this house. You know what my response is going to be? <laughs> Nothing. Because I'm dead. I'm dead. You see, that's the condition we are in, according to Paul. We are dead in trespasses and in sins. And that means when you're dead, when you're dead in a certain realm, you're dead to any stimulus or any activity in that realm. If we are dead spiritually, then we are dead to the spirit world. 1 Corinthians 2 says it this way. He says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. We are dead, and that means we cannot operate in the realm of the Spirit. But praise God, he says, he shall save. He shall save. We needed a Savior. We needed a Savior. But now, notice he doesn't stop there. He says he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save His people. My, the natural question for me then is who are His people? Who are His people? Well, let's, let's talk about that in the time we have left. Because it's important to know what it means that He says His people is the ones that He will save from His sins. Well, let, let's ask a few questions. Is it those who work harder? Is it those who work? Just, you know, just keep the law. That's what the Pharisees said. Just keep the law. You'll be okay if you'll keep the law. You do the sacrifices. You contribute to the temple. Today we might say, follow the Ten Commandments. Come to church. Do right. Tithe your money. Pay your free will offerings. Give to the church. Is it those who work harder? Well, Paul told the Galatians in chapter 3 and verse 21 that if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. In other words, if there's a law out there that we can keep, if we can keep it, then we can live by it. And that Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But it says, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. You know what he's saying here? There's not a law out there. In fact, in Romans, Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 20, just down from where we were reading, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So what does the law do? He goes on to tell us, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Over in the seventh chapter, he tells us the law is not the problem. You know, you say, well, this old law, boy, I hate the law. The law was such a problem. No, the law wasn't a problem. The law was spiritual. The problem was us, not the law. It says, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, Paul says, sold under sin. You know what the law does? It brings knowledge that we're a sinner. You know what the law did for the children of Israel? It didn't give them a pathway to get to heaven if they could just keep it. It was, a way to, it was like a mirror. 
that they could look into every day and say, man, look at how far short I fall. Look at the ways that I don't please God. Say, well, I guess he gave them the sacrifices of all those animals so that sins could be put off from year to year. No, (laughs) that's not what it was for. It says, by the blood of bulls and goats, no justification comes. No salvation comes by the blood of bulls and goats. But you know what was in them? There was a remembrance of sin. Every every time one of those little lambs was sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, every time that high priest laid his hands on the head of the scapegoat, and then that fit man led him across the bridge there over the brook of Kidron out into the wilderness into a land not inhabited where he would let him go, and the fit man would return. Every time those sins that had been confessed over the head of that goat symbolically was and that goat was led away they were reminded that we're sinners and we need a savior and we can't keep this law the law is a remembrance of sin james you say well I, you know i've done pretty good i've i've I, I hadn't committed adultery i hadn't robbed a bank committed theft i, I haven't killed anybody I don't have little idols in my house. You know, take the Ten Commandments and go down them and say, you know, I've, I've always worshipped the Lord. I haven't been setting up graven images. I've done, a, I've done all these things from, you might even say I've kept them all from my youth up. <laughs> and then you'd sound like somebody else I read about in the 10th chapter of Mark. A rich young ruler that came to Jesus. And he said, How, what must I do? that I may inherit eternal life. See, he thought he had to work harder. He thought he had to work his way to heaven. And listen, he told Jesus, I've kept all these things from my youth up. He thought he had kept the law, and he still wasn't satisfied. I want to tell you, I don't believe this man was insincere. I believe he's very sincere. He came running to Jesus. He was a desperate man. He was interested in the things of God. He wanted to go to heaven. (laughs) Which, by the way, we're going to find out means he was already on the way. (laughs) But he just didn't understand it. We're told there in that book that Jesus said, just keep the law. And he says, I've done it. But he still wasn't satisfied. Beloved, I suggest to you this morning, if you're trying to keep the law to go to heaven, you'll never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. Because Jesus lit upon the one law that he still hadn't kept. See, he kept it outwardly. And you and I can maybe, we can keep the law outwardly. But Jesus looked at him and said, one thing thou lackest. He said, go and sell everything you got and take up your cross and follow me. You know what he did? He lit up on the one, the one idol he was still holding in his heart. He had all these goods, all these material things, all this material wealth. He said he had much goods and he went away sorrowing. See, Paul said at one point, I kept all the law, but that last one got me every time. Thou shalt not covet. Brother Mackey, that one gets me every time. Because keeping the law is not a matter of the outward man. It's a matter of the inward man. It's a matter of the heart and not the flesh. It's a matter of the heart and not the hands. You can keep the law with your hands, but you can't keep the law with your heart as a rich young ruler learned. And by the way, there's one thing I left out of that story. Right there in Mark chapter 10, you read it sometime, and you'll read this. As that man is struggling, as that man is trying to work his way to heaven, it says, Jesus beholding him loved him. That tells me something important about that rich young ruler. That tells me that he was one of his people. He was one of these that we're talking about. 
Praise God. It's not those that work harder. And we're told in James that if you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you're guilty of all. So in other words, if you, if you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, you're still a lawbreaker. We say, I'm not that extreme. Okay. If you don't commit murder, but you cheat on your taxes, <laughs> you're a lawbreaker. If you don't commit bank robbery, but you get angry and break the law of speeding and cut people off in traffic and, and do things, what is it, road rage that we have? That's, that's the thing today. You get angry enough to kill your brother in your heart, you see. Then you've committed, you're a lawbreaker. And let's just say that you're able to do that you have done some wonder i'm sure you have i'm sure you've done good things i've tried to do good things in my life i've tried to be righteous but i tell you beloved if i were to try to bring my righteous works to god isaiah says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags you know why that is because again keeping the law doing right is not a matter of the hand it's a matter of the heart and everything I've ever done that would be considered a good thing has been done with the tainted curse of Adam's nature. It's been done with the wrong motive. <laughs> you know, I've been proud of some things I've done, right? And good thing you ever do something good and say, boy, I'm proud of that. <laughs> well, there you go. In the mind of God, you've just lifted yourself up in pride. So it's not those who work harder. Well, what about those who, is it those who learn more? Is it those who who get more education. You know, many today that believe that we can educate a man into heaven. They believe you can change his economic and his social circumstances through education. The worldly philosophy tells us that with better education, we can achieve a paradise on earth. I've got some bad news for you. We've already had a paradise on earth. It was called the Garden of Eden. If social circumstances and education or the pathway to salvation, then Adam would never have fallen. Because there's never been a more perfect setting society-wise than what Adam was in. You see, in the garden, he had all that he could ever possibly want of, of food and sustenance. He had, you know, men, rulers today, Napoleon being one of the last ones, I guess Hitler was really the last one. There are men throughout history that have tried to rule the world. Alexander the Great, we're told, got to the banks of the Indus River down in India, and he sat down and he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Men have been trying to rule the world from time immemorial, but guess what? Adam was the ruler of the world. <laughs> Adam actually did become the ruler. God put him in charge of the entire known world, the entire creation, this earth. Adam was in charge of it, and he messed it up. <laughs> I tell you, beloved, I've heard it said that you can, you can take the man out of the gutter, but you can't get the gutter out of the man. <laughs> you can put a new suit on a man, but you, only God can put a new man in a suit. <laughs> you see, circumstances, education, it's, it's not a... It's, that's not the answer. Jeremiah says it's a heart problem, not a head problem. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, that still applies to us as children of God, by the way. Be careful about following your heart. 
right? Be careful about following your heart. Because your heart, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There's a lot of things that seem right, seem like we ought to be doing it, but the end of it, the end of that path is the, is the pathway of destruction. See, it's a heart problem, not a head problem. People say, give your heart to Jesus. I heard Brother Spann say one time that his grandfather, who was a preacher, used to say, give your heart to Jesus. He said, what would he do with a nasty old thing? <laughs> it's deceitful. It's sin-cursed. It's, it's, it's full of Adam. It's, it's full of the Adamic nature. In fact, he has to give you a new heart. That's what has to happen. It's not those that learn more and get more educated. Well, maybe it's those who make better choices. Maybe that's how we become his people. Some say just, just choose him, just accept him, just give your heart to him or, or make the right choice. Jeremiah asked the question, can the Ethiopian change his spot or his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, without some other influence in your natural man, there's no way you can change your nature any more than a leopard can change his spots or an Ethiopian change the color of your skin. See, the problem is, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us what the problem is. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. That tells us something very important about us in nature. That now, remember, it's the natural man. That means the one who has not been born again and has no new nature. If all you've ever been born is in nature, you've only, you've only been born of your parents and you only are a physically alive human being, but you don't have any spiritual nature, then it says that natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Some say, well, what about the gospel? What, don't they have to receive the gospel? I would call the gospel one of the most important things of the Spirit of God, wouldn't you? <laughs> In fact, Jesus said, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The, 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 the natural man does not receive these things. The natural man will not uh, uh, accept Jesus in his own flesh. He will not, without a new nature, there is no, there is no desire for Christ. And you know, one of the problems I have with, with someone telling telling me that I have to make a better choice in order to go to heaven. Well, my question is this. Did I do it right? <laughs> Was I sincere enough? Did, did I really mean it? I've heard Brother Luke Hagler so many times talk about when he was in another uh, denomination and he, he said, I accepted Jesus a thousand times. I accepted him so many times. I went down one time publicly and did it, but I never was satisfied that I did it just right. I never felt like I had the heart where it needed to be. Was I sincere enough? And he said, I would pray every time the preacher would make the invitation. I would pray to myself, Lord, I, I love you. I accept you again. If I didn't do it right the last time, I'd do it again now. I had a family member one time tell me, came to me and said, I got saved again Sunday night. I was so saddened to hear that. I was excited, thankful that they had an experience of being rejuvenated to come back. to You know, how many, I've been converted many times. <laughs> Have you been there? I've been saved in an earthly sense from some things I was doing, delivered from the power of sin many times. 
But praise God, we only have to be saved eternally one time. <laughs> Once for all, He shall save His people from their sins. Is it about those who make better choices? You know, in Romans it tells us the ninth chapter, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God which showeth mercy. You know what the will is? It's a choice. It's an exercise of the will. It's a work. You say, well, that's not, no, it's a choice. It's not a work. Let me tell you, Brother Neil Honey explained this one time from this pulpit, I believe. You know what happens when you make a choice, when you make a decision? The neurons and the axons in your brain fire, and energy is transferred, and, and those thoughts that go through your mind, uh, that, that is, and you know what, you know what, by definition, work is, it's the expenditure of energy. Now, I don't know about y'all, but the job I have in, in, in my secular life requires me to make a lot of decisions. And I come home sometimes from those days when I've had to wrestle with a decision and I've had to make a choice between two different ways, two different outcomes, and I am worn out. I'll tell you, you know, I go, as you know, I've, I've, for many years I've, I've run the farm and I've, I still get out there some, but especially when I was running the farm, I would get out there and work all day in the hayfield and I would be tired, but I would be exhausted after Sunday preaching twice and preparing to preach and making sometimes the hardest work we do is in our minds trying to decide which direction to go a choice is a work well let me just wrap this up by saying this it is about a choice beloved it is about a choice but praise God it's not about your choice I'm so thankful because if it was up to me I'd make the wrong choice every time his people are those people whom he chose before the foundation of the world. See, when he says he shall save his people, it implies to us, it, 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 it proves to us that he had a people at that time. He had a people. He, he, there are people that are his people. And before any choice of ours, there was a choice of his. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us, According as he had chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, praise God for the choice of God, because the choices I make only have ever messed me up. But in Romans 8, 28, he says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Here's somebody who are the called according to His purpose, not according to their purposes. And he goes on to explain it to us. For whom He did foreknow. There's the choice of God right there. Not what He for. You know, some people explain the doctrine of election this way. They say that, you, uh, uh, God looked down through time and he saw what you would do. He saw what choice you would make. And based on your choice, he made his choice. Beloved, that's not what this verse says. It doesn't say what he saw. It says whom he foreknew. Not what, whom. See, that's another reason we don't believe in absolute predestination of all things. You know, this church went through that for several, several decades. Many churches fall into that trap. But beloved, don't let... Don't, let you, don't get in that trap. <laughs> you know, I realize there's a ditch on both sides of the road. You can go on one side of the road and believe that it's all up to you. <laughs> 
But if you get on the other side of the road, you'll be believing that every single thing that happens has been predestinated by God. But beloved, predestination makes God wholly and solely responsible for it, and he is not responsible for my bad choices. He is not responsible for the sin of this world. That's all on me. That's all on you. But you know what he is responsible for? Saving his people from their sins. Whom he did foreknow, what did he do? He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And by the way, don't let anybody ever talk to you about those that are uh, the, the chosen few. That people sometimes think, hey, you know, y'all think y'all are the chosen few. Beloved, let me tell you something. There's a multitude that no man can number out there of God's children. He says, he didn't say for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that, that he and those, and he and us four and no more could go to heaven. <laughs> That's not what he said. He said that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We find out, as we've said over in Revelations, about that many brethren. It's a multitude that no man can number. And moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. See, this is his people. And whom he called, them he also justified. That's his people. That's saving them from their sins. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Praise God. His people. In John 6, 37, he says to those disciples there, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. And him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. In the 18th chapter, when they came to get him, he said, I, it is I. And he says, I've told you it's me. He said, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. I am so thankful that he's not going to lose one of his people. Because you know what? If it was left up to me, he'd lose me. He'd lose me. He'd have lost me many times already today. He'd have lost me yesterday for sure. He'd have lost me last week when I responded in anger, when I said something I shouldn't, when I thought things I had no business thinking, when I saw things I had no business looking at. He'd have lost me. But praise God, it's on Him and not on me. That doesn't excuse my sin. And in fact, it ought to inspire me to do less sin. But it says, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. He tells us in Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, praise God, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Isn't that glorious? That before the world began, he loved you and he purposed to save you. And it was so certain that when the angel came to to Joseph in Matthew, he said, he shall save his people from their sins. <clears throat> you know, sometimes people get a little nervous as we bring this to a close. Sometimes people get a little nervous or agitated about when they hear the word election or predestination. I get objections sometimes like, well, boy, that's, a, that's an exclusive doctrine. Beloved, I want to tell you, it's the most inclusive doctrine there is. You know, under the, under the doctrines and teachings of the world, the only way someone can ever be in heaven is if they hear 
and respond positively to the gospel message. They've got to believe, they've got to accept, they've got to get baptized, various things like that. Whatever it is, they've got to do it. We believe that God's people is in every tribe and family and nation, every kingdom, nation, tribe, and family, and tongue, whether they hear the gospel or whether they don't. Praise God, he's going to save his people from their sins. We need to preach the gospel because those sheep need to hear it. They need to be relieved of the burden that they think they have to do something to get themselves to heaven. But oh, praise God. This is the most inclusive teaching there ever will be. Others say this. They'll say, what about, preacher, what about that man that just wants to go to heaven so bad? Wants to be part of the kingdom of God so bad, but he wasn't chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, that man is a fictional character. <laughs> that man doesn't exist. If you find anyone out there who is searching, who is convicted of their sins and is doing, has, a, has a sincere desire to be with Christ in heaven one day, that person, that's the clearest sign I know that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Yeah, Matthew, Matthew 1, 21, one of the greatest verses of assurance that you'll find in the Word of God. And boy, isn't there a great need for assurance today? Don't we, don't we live in a topsy-turvy world? Don't we live in a world where we're struggling just to keep our heads above water? We, we, we don't understand all the problems that even afflict our own lives. We don't have the answers for every problem that comes before us. I don't know the pathway out of every, every pit that I get, get into in this life, but I know one that does. I know one that does. You know, there are times when uh, maybe you need a firefighter, you know, and I look up and see Brother Glendon coming, and I'm so glad to see him. Sometimes maybe you need an EMT, Brother Glendon again, or some other ambulance worker. Maybe that's what you need. Sometimes you need, you need somebody to defend you. Somebody's, you know, uh, you, you feel threatened. You need, you need a police officer or Brother Bob. <laughs> I know he'll have a gun. <laughs> but, you know, you need different things in this world. Sometimes we don't even know what we need, but I can promise you, beloved, our Lord is the, is, is the all-fulfilling answer to every need we have. Isn't that glorious? You know, sometimes you need a lawyer. Sometimes you need a doctor. But you always need Jesus. Jesus always is the answer when he shows up on the scene. Praise God. Assurance, he, thou sh she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Let, let me just rewrite it just from our perspective, not adding to Brother Mackey or taking away from the scripture. She did bring forth a son. They did call his name Jesus, and he did save his people from their sins. Isn't that a glorious truth? May the Lord bless his word and may we be blessed with the assurance of eternal salvation. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.